Well, good morning. My name is Aubrey, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I hope that you can hear me. Um, If not, if it gets really hard to hear, maybe Jim Kidd could repeat everything after me to the back of the room, and we'll kind of relay it. You know, there was a day where churches didn't have to deal with this foolishness, right? Sound systems. You see those people over there? Try not to watch them. They're going to try to figure this out. (laughs) Back in September, we began this current sermon series, Who Are We as a Church and Where Are We Going? And we began this series of messages by focusing on the very center of our identity. We are a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the core of who we are. We're a church, a Christian church, a group of people gathered around the magnetic center of the good news of Jesus Christ. And in the weeks that followed that, we saw that being a church centered on Jesus produces both a centrifugal and a centripetal dynamic. A church that stays deeply focused on Jesus, there's this magnetic drawing into Jesus, but the Jesus we worship that we're drawn to always stands with His face to the world. And so we're drawn into Him, and then we're pushed out to love and serve the world, the part of the world in which we live, this city, that, that Christians are drawn into Jesus, and then by, by tapping into the life of Jesus, they, they are pushed out to find the broken places, the weak and the vulnerable places in our city, so that we labor there to create paths of shalom into the future. As a Christian church, we are drawn into Jesus which draws us into our city. So our aspiration as a church is to help build a great city for everyone that lives here. Our longing is to see God glorified, which always means we also long to see our city flourish. If you worship the Creator who's also the Redeemer... You always get the world with your worship. And we do this by partnering with whomever is interested in this city flourishing. Anyone that wants this city to become more and more a thriving and a good place for everyone to live, we will partner with. So on the one hand, we will partner with whomever is interested in our city flourishing. Because God gives all people, not just Christian believers, God gives all people talent and insight to preserve and cultivate a really thriving community. But on the other hand, we are also convinced that it is good for our city to have more Christians and more churches. And what I'm going to do this morning is to talk specifically about this issue 
of the role of Christians and churches in particular in building up a city for good and for flourishing. So if you have a Bible, turn to this passage that Mike read to us, Ephesians chapter 1. What we see in Ephesians chapter 1 and 2 and 3, and really on beyond what Mike read into chapter 4, we see that the church is central to God's work of serving and healing and renewing cities. The church is central to God's work of bringing justice and beauty and health and peace and flourishing to the world as a whole and to cities in particular. So let's look at this together, starting in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20. In in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 to 23, that first paragraph, we see that the heart of the problems in our world today are supernatural. The East knows it. The South knows it. The West is too smart for it. The, The enemy behind the enemy in our world today is a supernatural enemy. There is a hidden depth dimension to the brokenness in our world. Our world has been enslaved by the oppressive grip of spiritual forces that are in rebellion against God and His good purposes. And then we see in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1, notice what it says. You were dead because of your offenses and sins. That was the road you used to travel, keeping in step with this world's present age. In step two, with the ruler of the power of the air, that's those spiritual forces, the spirit that is even now at work among people whose whole lives consist of disobeying God. Actually, that's how all of us used to behave, conditioned by physical desires. We used, we used to do what our flesh and our minds were urging us to do. What was the result? We were subject to wrath in our natural state, just like everyone else. So here we see that the problem with our world is not only an anti-God spiritual reality, but also, in a word, death. Simply by living in this world and going through our day-to-day patterns of life, we are exposed to and captured by the slave traders of death. And this happens in a lot of ways through the passing on of a dark, broken cultural heritage, through exploitive and manipulative relational patterns, through national rhetoric of power and supremacy, through addictions and ideologies and patterns of thinking and behaving so brilliantly designed in such a perverted way as to ensure that the only pathways forward we can imagine or death ways. And then in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 18, not only is our problem anti-God spiritual realities, not only is our problem death ways that trap us, but in Ephesians 2, 11 through 18, we're reminded that this is not just individual, but it, it exports itself up to a much larger scale, specifically national 
and ethnic boundaries that are supposed to be places where cultures meet to bless one another, to give and receive gifts. But these boundaries of blood and soil have become places where we meet to destroy one another and to prevent one another from entering into each other's cultures and moving out. Instead of setting tables for joyful feasting, we build walls and watchtowers and our suspicions of one another intensify. And this is not just an American thing. This is the perennial thing of all ethnic groups. So here in Ephesians chapter 1 and 2, we have this triple threat of brokenness. We have dark spiritual forces. We have death ways. And we have ethnic and national divisions. This is our world. But in the same portion of Scripture, we see that God's solution is remarkable. God's solution to the spiritual... Is that for me, David? Yes. Thank you, David. You just have a feeling? Thank you, David. David brought me water because he feels like I can't sustain this. We'll see. I did grow up Baptist, so. God's solution to this triple threat of brokenness We are told in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 21 that in response to the spiritual forces that hold us in bondage, look what it says closely, in response to those spiritual forces, God has raised Jesus from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. That's God's answer. Jesus exalted above the spiritual forces. And then in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, in answer to death, God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So again, the answer to death is Christ. And then to heal the perennial problem of racism and ethnic divisions and national divisions, in chapter 2, verse 13, it says, Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace. The peace of who? The peace of black people and white people? Of Europeans and Asians? The peace that, that shatters the wall at the boundaries. He has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So over and over in Ephesians chapter 1 and 2, we are told that the work of God to heal our world is centered in Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 3, Paul goes on to say that when we look at Jesus as the solution to the world's problems, What Jesus is doing is something very specific. He is bringing God's kingdom, the reign and rule and life and goodness and truth and beauty and justice of a good, benevolent creator to every square inch of creation. Look at chapter 3, verse 6. 
This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And what is the gospel? Well, he doesn't tell us here. But we saw several weeks ago that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all written to unpack what the gospel is. And what is the gospel? It is the great news that in Jesus, the good, benevolent, wise, healing kingdom of God has arrived on earth. Through His life and death and resurrection and ascension and the outpouring of His Spirit, God is bringing His kingdom into this world. That's the news that's so good. It's called good news, the gospel. The work of God in our world is the kingdom of God launched in Jesus Christ. But, and we must see this, there is more to it than saying Jesus brings the kingdom. The work of God in our world is centered in Jesus, in His kingdom work, through the church. We see this at the beginning and the end of our reading. In literature, it's called a frame narrative. It's like the rhyme of the ancient mariner. It starts and ends with the same thing, trying to force you to interpret everything in between in the light of the frame. Go back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 21. God has raised Jesus from the dead and seated Him as His right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him His head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. You can't stop with Jesus. You have to keep going to the church. That's how it starts. And then look how it ends in chapter 3, verse 9. Paul says, My job is to make clear to everyone just what the secret plan is. The purpose that's been hidden from the very beginning of the world and God who created all things. This is it. This is the hidden plan. That God's wisdom in all its rich variety was to be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places through the church. So putting all of this together, we see that God's wise and kind and amazing response to the deep and dark painful problems of this world is to bring His kingdom through Jesus in the church. A vibrant church is absolutely essential. It is indispensable to the healing of the world. God is renewing all things through Jesus Christ. And all people in all places in our city and valley need to hear about and experience the hope and the renewal of God's kingdom. And while all of creation declares the majesty of God, the church is the means God uses to proclaim and extend His particular glory and goodness specially made known in the birth and life and ministry and death and resurrection and ascension and soon return of Jesus. Now I hope what you're seeing is that a big cosmic view of Christ results in a really big view of the church. Now if this is true, 
if the creator of all things is also the redeemer of all things, if the work of the one and only true God is to bring his good and gracious and kind and beautiful and just flourishing life to the world through the church, then we should see evidence of this. We should be able to find specific ways in which churches are good for cities. If God is good for the world, and if the work of God is centered in Christ through the church, then there should be some evidence somewhere that a church is good for a city. And there is. Here are just two pieces of evidence of a very specific nature. Economic evidence. There's a lot of other evidence we could talk about. But I want to name two pieces of economic evidence that, that churches are good for cities. First piece. An increase of churches and Christians in a city produces an increase of radical philanthropy. There is ample documented evidence to show this. Most people don't go into philanthropic mode and give away large sums of money until they're rich. However, study after study after study shows that Christians adopt philanthropic mindsets long before they become rich. Christians give away significant amounts of money they willingly limit their lifestyle and consumption to give away significant amounts of money compared to non-Christians. Now, I'm not saying that Christians are perfect at this, but there is significant data to show that Christians are more involved with communities of need by generously contributing to a wide range of charities in cities. Now that evidence is there. A second piece of evidence that Christians and churches benefit cities has been documented recently by a research project that drew together the University of Pennsylvania, the University of Toronto, and Ryerson University. And in this project, these three, a group of people from these three universities worked to map and measure the social infrastructures of cities and the economic impact of churches on the social infrastructures of cities. And what they were able to quantify is that throughout North America, for every $1 of a church's budget, not their missions budget, their total budget, the city in which that church is located is relieved of $4.77 of social services. This was not a Christian survey. This was done by these three universities. And it's becoming known among some sociologists as the halo effect. For every dollar of a church's budget, these studies indicate there is a measurable, almost $5 relief on the social services of the city. Now, our budget is nearly half a million dollars, so what does that come to? $2.5 million of social service relief for Harrisonburg. 
This is remarkable. Now, regardless of the exact specifics, what I'm saying is that these are just two points of data that show on an economic level that churches are good for cities. The church has a central role in a healthy, well-functioning city, not the least of which is shaping citizens of the city into the image of a generous God. In other words, the weird practices that we do, the peculiar practices of a church gathered around Scripture and communion, Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, the peculiar practices of the church gathered around word and table, engaged in proclamation and mercy, have a collateral effect on the flourishing of a city that we should not miss. This is part of the reason that we as a church have been so deeply committed to planting churches. Because it's good for cities. From the beginning, we've been committed to and involved in church planting. Think about this. After I get a sip. Smart man, David. Think about this. Our church is seven years old. And we have already been involved directly and indirectly in five church plants. First of all, us. We were involved in the planting of Incarnation. When we were just a year and three months old, by the kind grace of God, Luke Konefke moved here with his wife and baby to serve as our first curate. Anglicans have lots of weird words. A curate is a young person, after they've graduated seminary, while they're doing the equivalent of their medical residency, they've done the education, now they do on-the-job training under serious supervision. When the Konefskis moved from Harrisonburg after just a a one-and-a-half-year curacy, they moved to Houston. And instead of going back to the church they grew up in, They drove every Sunday 50 minutes across town to join in with a brand new church plant because of the way they had been shaped here. That's a very indirect connection, but that's the way people come in among us. And one example of somebody going out with this vision, laboring in another place with the church plant. Then... In 2015, we planted our first daughter church, the Church of the Lamb in Elkton. This involved saying goodbye to approximately 25% of our congregation and one-third of our parish council and our second curate, Kevin Whitfield. And together, this group with us worked to start a brand new church in Elkton. Then, in 2016, by God's grace and kindness, we were able to provide space for a Sudanese congregation, an Arabic-speaking congregation, to worship in our church on Sunday afternoons. And then, earlier this year, we helped start Holy Cross Anglican Church in Crozet. Now, Josh Lowe tells me that our church only has three resources, people, money, and a building. And we have dedicated all three of these to supporting and nurturing and aiding and abetting church plants. 
Church planting is as much a part of our church as worship and discipleship and mercy and justice. Why? Why is church planting one of the regular ministry fronts of our church along with and just as much as worship, evangelism, discipleship, mercy and justice? The reason is because God's wise and kind and amazing response to the deep and dark and painful problems of this world is to bring His kingdom to this world through Jesus in the church. Vibrant churches are absolutely essential. They are indispensable to God's kingdom. And there is ample biblical, historical, and sociological data in study after study after study to indicate that a vigorous and continuous approach to church planting is the only best way to guarantee an increase in Christians, the number of Christians, and it's one of the best ways to renew the older churches. And so... The parish council and the staff, we are working to position our church so that we can wisely use the incredible resources God has so generously given us to start new churches. And this is going to play out in, one of, in three ways for the rest of our life. One, we will continue to plant mother-daughter churches. This is when a group of people in our church go out from us to start a new church like Church of the Lamb in Elkton. Two, we will continue to send and train church planters, like Kevin, like Drew. And three, we will continue to support and consult and partner with others that are planting churches, like Holy Cross in Crozet. So just think about Drew and Mary Elizabeth and their children. Drew is our current curate. Our diocese, has identified us as a church planter training church. And they give us a significant grant every year to to pay for Drew's curacy. His curacy, it's a three-year program. Year one, the goal is to get him ordained, which we did. Year two, he identifies where he's going to go and plant. That's what he's doing right now. Year three, he gears up for that plant. And so Drew's just began his second year of the program. And he's exploring various places to plant in the fall of 2019. The Lord willing, the Dildays will go out from us in two years to plant a church somewhere. I hope it's in Harrisonburg. But we can't control that. Trying to nail down the future is a dicey thing when God knows more than you do. It might be in Pennsylvania. He's exploring some really exciting options there. It might be in New Jersey. It might be further down the valley. What he's doing is working with me and our bishop and our other churches. And his job for this fall is to put all of the opportunities on the board and explore them all vigorously so that by next fall, he can have identified a place and he and Mary Elizabeth can be really doing the hard work that it takes in the run-up to planting that kind of church. But regardless of where they end up, we hope to plant a new church here in Harrisonburg over the next two to five years. Why? Because there are studies that indicate if you can plant a new church every five years, you keep the movement going. 
Our intent and desire and strategy and the changes we're going through are all designed, in addition to all the stuff I said about mercy and justice and the stuff I'll say in the next couple of weeks, they're designed to keep church planting as a perpetual, normal part of our life. So that every five years or so, we're planting a daughter church. So that by the time our church is 20 years old, we will have planted three to four churches in this general area, not to mention all the other churches that we will have been and will continue to be involved in planting in other ways. So let's wrap this all up by going back to where we started. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 21. God tells us that He raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, who is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And then Ephesians chapter 3, verse 9, he ends by telling us that his secret plan, the purpose that was hidden from the very beginning of the world, was to make known his wisdom in all its rich variety through the church. May the Lord Jesus Christ bless the church of the incarnation as we labor for him and with him in the power of the Holy Spirit for God's glory and for the good of our city and our valley. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.